Welcome to Impact Medicom's podcast series on COVID-19 prophylaxis. I'm your host, Anna Christofides. In this series, we discuss the use of COVID-19 pre-exposure prophylaxis as a strategy to protect our most vulnerable populations who are not able to mount a sufficient antibody response to vaccination. Our guest on today's episode is Dr. Cowan, who is an associate scientist at the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute and assistant professor at the University of Ottawa. Dr. Cowan is also cross-appointed as an assistant professor at the Department of Biochemistry, Microbiology and Immunology and a physician for the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Ottawa Hospital in Ontario. Her clinical and research focus is on prevention of infection in immunocompromised patients. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much, Dr. Cowan, for joining us today to discuss COVID-19 prophylaxis and how we can protect our most vulnerable populations. So today, I I just wanted to start by asking you, what is the usual response to COVID-19 vaccination in the general population? Well, thank you, Anna. In general population, the usual response to two doses of mRNA COVID-19 vaccine is very good, actually. Almost all uh, patients would respond to two doses of the vaccine as evident by the generation of SARS-CoV-2 specific antibodies. In terms of vaccine effectiveness or how good the vaccine does clinically, it varies depending on which outcome you want to look at. For example, if you want to look at the vaccine effectiveness against severe infection, that is about 90% in immunocompetent people. And the vaccine effectiveness is very close to 100% for dead outcome, meaning it's very, very good in preventing people not to die from SARS-CoV-2 infection. This number is still quite true in the current Omicron era. However, as you know, the vaccine effectiveness for infection has decreased significantly. I would say down to about 8 to 10%, where a third dose of vaccine will help a little bit, help boost that number up to about 60%. Mm, Okay. So in other words, the newer variants are causing a decline, I guess, in the effectiveness of the vaccine. Yes, I think part of it is that as well as the duration of, uh, you know, vaccine interval, the longer you receive the vaccine, the lower the antibody titer. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And and are there certain groups of people who may have a reduced response to vaccination? And what are some of the reasons for that? Yeah, for sure. So there are two big groups of people who um, have reduced response to vaccines. And those are the elderly people and the immunocompromised individuals. Immunocompromised individuals can include patients with transplantation, patients who had uh, chemotherapy for cancer, patients with inborn error of immunity, or we call primary immunodeficiency or congenital immunodeficiency. So yeah, so those are the people who would have reduced immune response. And that is because they have weakened immune system or sometimes dysregulated immune system. Right. Okay. That makes sense. And what, for these people, what is the psychological impact of the pandemic? It must be quite difficult for that group. Yeah, very, um, very much so. Uh, I care for patients with primary and secondary immunodeficiency. I have had many phone calls, many uh, patient visits 
and the majority of my time talking about the psychological stress, really um, providing some support there. And so I've seen people fear of going out, working on site, or meeting other people. They are lonely. They're isolated. And this is not only for individuals with immunodeficiency themselves, but they're also their loved ones, and all people in their circles are also affected. You know, I have patients who uh, are scared of having new relationships. Some people need uh, marital counseling because of the difficulty at home. Some people need it to keep their children at home for two years straight without any social activities whatsoever. And some people became obsessive compulsive about cleaning everything, including all grocery bags and things like that. So it has a, a profound impact psychologically to these patients. Well, wow, yeah, that's that's very difficult. I mean, for people, it, that's very tough. Is there anything that can be done to improve the protection of these vulnerable populations? And you know, any treatments that have been approved for perhaps pre-exposure prophylaxis? Well, first of all, vaccination is still a great protection. Majority of these patients, although they have reduced response to vaccines, they still have some response to vaccine. And when we talk about vaccine response in terms of antibody, that's just one facet of immune system. The other part that we haven't talked about is the T cell response. And majority of these people, although did not respond very well by producing high antibody titer, they do produce T cell immunity. This has been published as well in the last little while, although it's not as uh, robust as the antibody paper. So that's number one. Number two is that there is pre-exposure prophylactic treatment. And this means that you get a drug or medication prior to getting COVID infection in order to prevent you from getting COVID infection. And currently in Canada, that kind of treatment that exists, and that is TISA, Jevimab, and Silgavimab, or Evushel. The other treatment we have, such as uh, Paxlovid and Remdesivir, that is definitive treatment. So meaning that it's given to people who already have positive COVID-19 testing. And in that case, we do not call that prophylaxis. So then we're going to talk about the, um, because your question is about pre-exposure prophylaxis, so we're going to talk about the uh, Evushel. So that is available in Canada. Now, each province has their own eligibility criteria. For example, in Ontario, people who are eligible to Evushel are people who are recipients of organ transplant, uh, stem cell transplants, who uh, had CAR T-cell therapy, for their leukemia, or people who had blood cancer, such as leukemia itself, are eligible to get shield. Yeah, excellent, excellent. So uh, that's a really thorough explanation. Thank you so much. And so the eligibility criteria in general uh, for the pre-exposure prophylaxis, so is that across all immunocompromised people, or is it certain groups of them? Or Yeah, so uh, I think at this point in Ontario, still only certain groups of them. For example, primary immunodeficiencies are not listed, but this is hard. I and I'm not the policymaker. So the decision to 
come up with the eligibility criteria will have to be based on multiple factors, number of people affected in certain conditions, um, severity of COVID-19 infections if they were to get them, the availability of the monoclonal antibody itself. And I'm sure that this criteria will evolve over time based on real-world data because you know, the the clinical trial data of the ProVent trial data, it showed good efficacy in terms of preventing people from not getting COVID-19 infection. But if you look carefully in that trial data, only a small number of patients in that trial had immunocompromised state. It's not a good representative at all for our patient population. And when they look at the subgroup analysis in these patients with immunodeficiency, um, they did not have enough outcome event to really assess the treatment efficacy. And therefore, I think that we still have to wait and see what the real-world data is like. That's, that's a good point. Is there, in fact, any real-world data that you're aware of? that? Uh... There was a study in chronic lymphocytic leukemia patients where they looked at the ability of these Ebushield at 150 milligrams for, for both components of the Ebushield uh, versus the 300 milligrams of the both components of the Ebushield. And that paper showed that the 150 milligrams or a total of 300 milligrams did not provide the neutralization very well as compared to the 600 milligram. But again, this is more of the in vitro uh, assay. I have not really seen the treatment effectiveness in immunocompromised patients in real world. Mm. And patients that I am interested in, particularly the primary immunodeficient patients, that's even rarer. We, we do not have that data at all. Mm-hmm. So what would you recommend given, you know, this, this sort of new area and, you know, COVID evolving so quickly and uh, research maybe not always being able to keep up? Yeah. What, where, in what patients would you feel this, this strategy might be useful? Yeah. So as an infectious disease specialist, I get to see patients hospitalized patients with COVID-19 infections or um, not better with usual therapy. And I have observed that in the last eight months or so, basically in 2022, people who are who ended up being in the hospital or in the ICU are patients with hematological malignancies, uh, patients with uh, bone marrow transplantations and there are also patients who had rheumatoid arthritis who uh, were on B-cell depleting therapy, particularly rituximab. Despite all of these patients had vaccination, so despite being vaccinated and fully vaccinated, they still had severe COVID-19 infection and prolonged shedding of the viruses. And therefore, I think people who should get pre-exposure prophylaxis will be, will be this patient population. But again, this, is, this could be my bias because these are the people I see in the hospital, which is representative of population in Ottawa and vicinity area. And 
I think it would be good to see what other people seen at, at other hospitals in other jurisdictions, whether this really representative of patients who still get severe COVID-19 infection. Yeah, no, that's a good point too. And have you had any experience yourself in delivering the COVID-19 prophylaxis treatment? I have referred patients for pre-exposure prophylaxis treatment. I've never given it myself. So it's yeah, a, okay. the nurse, yeah, yeah. the nurse who does it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so yes, I have referred patients too, and the experience so far has been good. Um, I have not heard of any complaints about side effects, and so far I have not seen or heard of anyone who had ever showed and developed COVID nineteen. But this this the size the sample size is so small. Of course, of course, yeah. In terms of a strategy like this, I mean, of course, it's continually evolving and, and hopefully we'll get more data as time goes on. But, you know, how important is it to have some other strategies for these patients uh, in order to help improve their quality of life? It is important to have many strategies to help patients having less risk or lower the risk of infection, as you uh, say and improve their quality of life by reducing their psychological stress. So the more, the, 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 more the better, basically, variety of avenues. I, I want to tell you, though, Anna, that um, even before the COVID era, immunodeficient patients were at risk of infections, right? It's not just the COVID. Of course, of course. Before. And prior to COVID pandemic, we have always been telling our immunodeficient patients to be careful, to use masks when they are in public or not going to the crowded area, wash their hands often, get vaccination every year for influenza, and don't meet people um, if, if those people are sick. Um, so it's kind of same recommendation, but I think COVID really amplified that message. And with the hype in the media, sometimes that can be that can be mm-hmm. have negative impact to these people because they're they have much more fear than than ever. Yeah, it sort of yeah amplifies the whole situation absolutely. And are there any insights that you could provide to other primary immunodeficiency specialists on which patients might benefit the most from COVID nineteen prophylaxis? Yes. So I'm not sure whether you're aware that we are doing a observational study on vaccine immunogenicity and safety in primary immunodeficient patients across Canada. And oh, that's interesting. I, I have seen some B cell and T cell responses data coming in. I, I do not have the full picture as of yet. So based on that study and based on my clinical experience and based on other published studies, it's still unclear to me which subgroup in the primary immunodeficient patients should receive pre-exposure prophylaxis. I would say that for now, I would advocate for patients with X-linked A-gamma globulinemia common variable immunodeficiency patients with complications. Um, So in the CVID, a common variable immunodeficiency, some some patients would only have history of infections, 
no other complications at all, such as uh, autoimmune cytopenia or malignancy or, or other autoimmunity. In that patient population who just has history of infection, in my um, or in our uh, study data, they respond very well to vaccines via T cell responses. But the CBID patients with complications who likely have dysregulated immune system as well, those people did not respond too well to the vaccine. And that's why I would advocate for, for those patients. Just so you know as well that I have kept track of patients in our clinic with primary motor deficiency who got COVID-19. And we have now about 17 patients uh, who got COVID-19 this year as of January. Uh, 16 has had common variable immunodeficiency, one had um, X-linked agammaglobulinemia. None of them were hospitalized. All of them were vaccinated, though. So I, I do think that vaccination does have some impact on the outcome of these patients when they get COVID-19 infection. Because if you look at the data um, that came before vaccines were available, 10% of patients with inborn error of immunity uh, die from COVID-19 infection. And that's, I think that vaccine um, does help. At the same time, when you look closely at the data of those 10% of people who, uh, who died, they all had comorbidities as well, such as chronic lung disease or had history of transplant or had autoimmune cytopenias. So really is the primary immunodeficiency with comorbidities that make people at higher risk of having severe outcomes from COVID-19 infection. Yeah. And, and I guess uh, any other sort of advice that you would give, I know, given the fact that uh, this is all so new and there's not a lot of data out yet, how do you make those decisions, you know, about who to give this to? That's really hard. That's really hard, Anna. I, I'm talking to my own experience here, um, the fact that I have access to their <laughs> vaccine responses, mm -hmm. I kind of know um, which patients would be better having additional protection, right? And and so based on that, I I recommended some of our patients to get um, pre-exposure prophylaxis, but not everybody has this information. Not everybody can check vaccine responses, and so. We hope that our study that we're doing currently will provide some information, although not, not right now, not immediately, but in the future, we can provide some information to physicians who care for patients with primary immunodeficiency to see which type of patient subgroups in their patient population who would likely going to get added benefits from having pre-exposure prophylaxis. Yes, that's that's great. That sounds like a very interesting study. And uh, when do you see the initial results coming out from your study? Well, we are hoping, we really do hope that we can get the initial results out by the end of September. But, you know, this is a hope that everyone is uh, aiming for. But, uh, you know, there can be some barriers along the way. But there you go. I, I think end of September. <laughs> Hope. Excellent. Yeah. So any, any last words of advice for healthcare professionals who may be making these decisions about whether to use a product like Evusheld in their patients? 
I think if you have access to it and you have patients with immunodeficiencies and comorbidities and elderly, I would advocate for pre-exposure prophylaxis on top of vaccination and on top of um, other public health measures. At this stage, at today's age, uh, where we are in the Omicron variant BA4 and BA5, because I think that it still can um, provide added protection. The, there has been some reports on how good this pre-exposure prophylaxis Evoshell in particular work or how, how good it is still um, with the BA4 and BA5. And it shows that their ability to neutralize BA4 and BA5 variants, although compromised as compared to the original uh, strain, is still better than the BA2. So there certainly still some act, uh, neutralization activity. And that is why I would still advocate for patients who are at higher risk to get um, pre-exposure prophylaxis. Now, Anna, there's another complex issue here that is the dosing. As I alluded a little bit earlier that there was a study in chronic lymphocytic leukemia where they found that uh, higher dosage would be better. So at this point, though, I don't know for BA4 and BA5 whether the 300 milligrams is still applicable here or we should um, advocate for 600 milligrams. Again, we need more studies to help us making decision on what to do with our patient. Yes, I think that's it's so tricky, isn't it, with the the rapidity in which things evolve, you know, to 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 do the studies within that time before things move on. Um, exactly. Other variants. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's very tricky. Um, but it just seems like with COVID, we just I'll try to do the best we can and and with what little, little data we have, right, um, to make these decisions. But uh, I definitely really appreciate all of your insights here, Dr. Cowan, and uh, thank you so much for, for joining us today and providing your, your expertise. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you.